You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Julie? Good. How are you? Great. Thanks for making time today. We're uh, going to talk. Uh, I've been talking to Bo, you know, at the uh, Virginia Festival. He's also got the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that because you're going to be at both of those events this year. I want to definitely highlight that, what you have going with the women's program, especially. But you also have experience with Team USA. Uh, we dig into that. And also Oklahoma is a place we haven't um, been to yet with the podcast. So I want to talk about that for people that are around the area. But before we get into all that, take us back real quick to fly fishing. How did it first begin? What's your first memory? I grew up in Montana, so it's a perfect state to learn to fly fish. When I was about 10 years old, I attended a fly fishing show in Livingston, Montana. I was fortunate enough to meet Joan Wolf there. Mm. And I, at that moment, at 10, decided that's who I wanted to grow up to be. Right. Uh, by no means have I made it that, but um, <laughs> definitely that that was the start. I started tying flies then and got my first kit for Christmas and, and just through the years just kept at it. Right. Gosh. So what was that like? Do you remember that like it was yesterday when you first met Joan? I do. I remember being that kid that she's sitting at basically, you know, a table and we're in the park in Livingston and she's tying and my eye level is, you know, level with her because she's sitting down and I mean, I'll never forget it as long as I live. So it was great. Wow. And uh, yeah. And that was back. So when was that when you, when you met her? <laughs> So we're talking uh, this coming weekend, it'll be 45 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. It's been a little while. <laughs> yeah. And we had Joan on. Uh, it's been a while now, but um, she's still out there going strong. And have you have you uh, connected with her, kept up with her over the years? You know, I follow her, um, of course, as many of us do and stuff throughout time, but I, I have uh, not been able to actually make it to you know her place where she does classes and stuff but yeah yeah nice good well that's awesome that's a good start i think joan is definitely probably you know as far as people that are still alive out there she's probably you know definitely one of the biggest names you know out there so um but then what how did you bring it into team usa i mean what came first did the team usa or guiding or how did all that come to be so of course you know life happens school and all that stuff and then uh when I was in my 30s, I um, went to Alaska. I decided I was going to go and, and go up to Alaska. And I spent two years just kind of scouting and jumping on any float plane that any pilot would let me go on. And then I, I was an outfitter up there for 13 years. And so really, that's where my career started. As a woman, it was it was a little tougher to get into the industry, but it was you know, in Alaska, I was able to do that. So I did that for 13 years and then returned to Montana and guided on the upper Madison and then ended up in Oklahoma for about the last eight years. And I go up to Alaska some during the summers. Oh, okay. How'd you end up back to, or in Oklahoma? I was asked to come there and guide during the winter and take some overflow that was happening with the company and just kind of stuck. So, yeah. So that's that's where I, where I ended up. The winters are definitely don't have to shovel any snow, you know, on a normal basis. So that's kind of nice. Oh yeah, right, right. And and then when did uh, Team USA did that come more recently, or how did that happen? So Team USA was was kind of a 
a funny thing. I mean, they were taking sign up and it was on the internet. And what they were doing was trying to get people involved and you applied. And at first I didn't, you know, know what it was about or anything. I'd always looked into competitive fishing, but it always had to do with casting, not really, you know, competing on the water. And then there was a lot that was happening back east in those areas, PA and stuff, but nothing really out west or central to my knowledge. And then, um, so I applied and then sent in the application and was contacted and there was supposed to be a clinic and some interviews go on and then COVID happened. So that would have been in 2020. So then after that, they had formed a team to go to Norway, but all that was stopped due to COVID. And then we started clinics and from there it just, you know, started forming. So it's relatively new. Oh, gotcha. So yeah, so that the the Team USA for the Women's is a fairly new um, event, the whole thing. Yeah, the first one was in Norway in July of 22, and then we went to Canada this year in 23, and then we'll be going to Czech Republic in 24. Okay, and how's it been going? Because I know we documented, we've documented the history of the men's pretty well, where there was a you know, they start off really rough back in the day when they were like terrible and they were just taking whoever off the street. And then they finally got, you know, better and better. And now they're like, I mean, Pete um, uh, Erickson, who was our kind of Euro guy, he just won the gold in the masters. Right. So they're at a high level now. Have you, have you seen some challenges early on or how's that look? Yeah, there is some challenges. I mean, First, what we did is we did clinics in different areas like um, New York. And then we went to Colorado and we went to North Carolina and you were able to attend all those. And that's something that I did from the start is I attended every single function that I could. And then that put me in a good position going into nationals and doing mini cops. So you accumulate points along the way. And um, out of that, there was, I think, 17 or 18 women that showed up at nationals. And out of those, there was 10 chosen. And then out of that, there was a team chosen to go to the first ever women's worlds in Norway. And how many people were on that first Norway trip? So on the first Norway trip, there was seven competitors that went. There was two reserves and five that competed. Okay. And did you compete? No, I was a reserve. And what was that like being um, just that whole thing, you know, being there in Norway? What was the experience like? Oh my gosh, it was fantastic i mean from the minute we landed everybody was super nice norway was you know they hosted super well they were there if we had questions we had a a guide of course that showed us around the first 10 days that we were there before going into competing so no it was a great experience they had a huge opening ceremony with their prime minister of foreign affairs so and it was on the fourth of july so they were telling us happy birthday all the time for America. <laughs> so it was kind of a big deal, I guess. So. Oh, wow. And, and was this separate now? I'm not even sure with the men's. Is that all separate or is it during the same time? So it kind of changed up from there. It was an international um, competition for the men while we were there. They try and have two functions during each world. To kind of fast forward, when we went to Canada, we were there with the men's masters. So it was the first time that we both meddled and were able to stand up on the podium together. So that was unique. Oh, right. Yeah. So let's take us there. So you were there when, uh, so Pete, right, did take home the gold for the men's? Were you there for that? Yeah. So there was that. And then the whole men's team took the silver medal and the women's team took the bronze medal. Wow. So the, so the women's took the bronze. And was that, now how was that different? So that experience in Canada versus your first one in Norway, was it uh, with a lot of similarities or how'd that look? Um, no, it was a lot different. So in Norway, it was four rivers, one lake. And there, you know, we had a team of five that competed on those waters. They did really, I mean, fantastic job. We uh, missed it by one fish of, of getting the bronze medal, but we lost the medal to Norway. So I mean, it was their country, so kind of okay with that, you know? <laughs> um, and then when we went to Canada, we did change up the team, too. I was a competitor on that team. Um, not saying that that's what got us, you know, the bronze yeah. medal. I'm not saying that at all. But 
the team and it was four lakes and one river. So it was completely different. Just oh, wow. like Czech Republic will be um, two lakes, three rivers. So it's always changing on what the venues are. Amazing. Amazing. So there's a good mixture of, of lakes of still water. And we've, you know, we've done a lot of still water recently because Phil Roy is like our still water guru. So he's been doing a lot of stuff on the podcast. But um, what does that look like for you? Are you out there in Oklahoma doing kind of an equal amount still water and rivers? Or are you kind of focused on more of the rivers? No, I'm, I'm focused on rivers. Here in, you know, Oklahoma, we're a little bit limited to our trout waters due to the environment. Um, so the lower mountain fork is, there's two rivers in Oklahoma that actually have trout year round because the lakes are able to keep the water at a um, temperature that allows that. Oh, right, right. So you're fishing, basically, yeah, these are, the lower mountain fork is a tailwater? Yes, correct, from Broken Bow Lake. Okay. So, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, other areas that would be noted in Oklahoma, what are a couple other ones? Or is it really just that that is the, there is just a couple of tailwaters that are the, really the ones you can hit throughout the year? Yeah, and that really is, I mean, during the winter, that opens up more. There's the Blue River, the Little Illinois. I mean, there's there's several other ones that you can go to. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'll run down maybe a little bit later some uh, questions on just other areas, but I wanted to hit on... You know, just Oklahoma specifically, like you said, because we haven't dug into it yet. What, what does it look like when somebody's coming, you know, to you and they're thinking, hey, they want to get out and do some fishing? What's the first step? What are you, as far as techniques, what are you doing over there? So, I mean, there's a lot of the dry dropper that goes on. A lot of real tiny bugs, you know, um, dry droppers effective year round. That's one thing about the lower mountain fork. You can be out there in February and seeing you know mayflies flying around in caddis it's it's just so bizarre coming from the western states that there's those continuous hatches it's not that it's big hatches but there's still a variety of bugs continuously coming off of that river right 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 right. yeah so that's it i mean because you're far enough different than montana and some of those other places that are up north you're you're not all the way down south but you're pretty far in an area that's fairly warm throughout the year is that the case right so we're located in the southeast corner of oklahoma so within i don't know 15 minutes you're in arkansas or you can be in texas so we're we're kind of right there in that area um you know most of the time the temperature's 60 maybe maybe 30 in the mornings you know, during the winter. So it's really no different than your spring and fall fishing in Western states. And that's something, you know, that I try to put out there a lot with people in the Southern area because they're thinking it's too cold and it's really not. Gotcha. And the mountain fork, it's interesting just looking at it. You have from a map, I guess I'm looking at Beaver's Bend State Park, but you've got the, um, the lake, is it the Broken Bow? Is that the lake? Is that the big lake that is created by the mountain fork? Or describe that, the overall, the water body, how water is moving in and out of that. Okay, so with the Broken Bow Lake, the lower mountain fork, upper mountain fork flows into it. And then at the dam is where the lower mountain fork is created. But with that being said, what comes out of the dam is called Spillway Creek. And that flows for maybe a mile or so and then it hits basically a bluff wall and that's where the lower mountain fork is formed on that end ever wondered where to find unparalleled fly fishing gear in a world full of ordinary jackson hole fly company stands out merging innovation with affordability they've redefined the online fly shop experience with their own line of high quality rods reels accessories and tools not to mention over 1,000 hand-tied fly patterns discover fly fishing gear that doesn't compromise impeccable quality yet surprisingly affordable discover the magic of jackson hole fly company and remember every great story starts with a cast visit jacksonholeflycompany.com today and where is the where you're fishing, is there a, a small area geographically that you're covering, or is there a lot of water, a lot of miles to cover there for the Mountain Fork? No, there isn't a lot of miles. Basically, I am from the dam below through the Beaver Spend State Park. Oh, okay. Because after that, once you get into the lower, lower part of the Mountain Fork, it gets real deep, dark, 
it's a complete different river down below. Yeah, and remind me again, I'm totally backwards on this, but which way is the actual river? Is it flowing from south to north or north to south? It would be flowing south. Yeah, it's flowing south. Okay, so it is. So it's flowing down in, out of the lake, and then out into into Texas, essentially. Right. Yeah, and you're fishing the section between, like you said, between the Beaver Bend State Park and, and Texas, somewhere in there. No, no, I'm I'm in Beaver Bend State Park. Oh, yeah, you're in Beaver Bend. Okay. Yeah, and that's where the water's crystal clear. It's very wavable. You know, there's, you know, kind of flipping back to the team. It's a great place. You know, the youth have practiced there for years, too, um, in the past, just because there's so many different types of structure in that water. There's pocket water. There's long stretches. Um, there's deep holes. So it's it's just a variety. I see. Gotcha. Okay, now I got my uh, the geography uh, situated here. So basically, yeah, it comes out of that and then eventually flows down. And does that tailwater eventually just get too warm down towards as you get towards Texas to hold fish? Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, and once you hit the Broken Bow area, there's a bridge that crosses 70 there. And that's where you start getting a lot of activities of kayakers, canoers, tubers, that type of thing. So that's more, and there's no real access down through that area i see okay so yeah you got this area so are you doing mostly kind of walk and wade in there that is correct yeah there's there's not anywhere to launch boats and be able to take in and out at certain points there's a couple bridges that they put blocks in during the summer that hold water back for some of the activities within the park okay cool and how does that look when, you know, just for folks, and I think, I mean, you are nearby, I mean, Arkansas, you know, there's plenty of famous rivers around that area that we've talked about, but how does that area compare, you know, to other areas? Are people coming in there from mostly locally or where are your clients coming in from to fish that water? You know, really anymore, they come from everywhere. I mean, just the other day, I had people that flew in from Florida because they own a cabin up in that area. So... And it's, it is a big hub for um, rentals of cabins. You know, there's probably about 5,000 cabins in that area. And there's a oh, huge, wow, right. huge casino going in now. The Choctaw are putting in a brand new casino. So there's all kinds of things going on in that area outside of just fishing where it used to be a smaller fishing town, kind of. I see. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's plenty of people coming through and... And then the fishing, talk about that. What are the species that you're uh, you're targeting there? It's mainly rainbow. And then the second one would be brown trout. And we, you know, we used to have some, some really great big fish in that river. And then we had a flood in 2016 that, that actually took out bridges, buildings, and all kinds of things. And that moved out some of the fish, but we're really coming back and starting to see some of those bigger browns again. Gotcha. Yes. And the browns, as far as fishing, is it similar to how you would be fishing a brown in, in Montana or somewhere up there as far as, you know, what you're using and techniques? Yeah. I mean, you know, your dry dropper, your um, nymphing. And then, of course, in the fall, we're always wanting to streamer fish, you know, for the browns and the rainbows for that matter. And it, that river is stocked on a regular basis with rainbows. The browns were stocked at one time. But we're starting to see a lot of those like in the 14, 15 inch range. And there's a natural reproduction of both species going on too. So we have natural reproduction on top of the stocking that happens. Oh yeah. Right in like in that section, mostly the same area that you're fishing. Yes. Yeah. And they get, you know, they, with this is, it's one of the few rivers that gets stocked, like I say, year round, every couple of weeks actually. Mm-hmm. And is the Broken uh, Bow Lake or people, is that more recreation or people fishing that too? No, it's both. Um, it holds a lot of big bass, walleye, crappie. Those would probably be the top three species that, you know, are talked about a lot. And we do steer occasionally some smallmouth in the river, you know, on, in certain parts. And every once in a while, catch a few crappie and stuff. So there, there are things besides just trout that do make it in the river, but it's not a plentiful type situation gotcha and are there people fishing of like fly fishing the lake no i haven't you know heard a lot of that i mean there's you know there's always a few of us guides that go and mess around but 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a it's not a destination yet. No, they have a lot of competition fishing as far as like bass fishing up on the lake. Right, right. This is cool. So yeah, so basically, yeah, Oklahoma's kind of a unique shaped state, right? It has the pan the panhandle and have you been all over Oklahoma or are you have you been mostly spent time in that southeast corner? I've mostly spent time in just that southeast corner. I mean, I've traveled, you know, of course, to a couple of the bigger cities a few times, but by no means am I fishing throughout the state. Yeah, gotcha. So you're basically during, like, when do you arrive in Oklahoma from the, when do you get done with Alaska? Is that an annual thing? You go to Alaska, then come back after it cools down there? So Alaska is something that I just started last year, and then this year will be the first full season. You know, I was there for 13 years, but... I got asked to come back up there. I, I managed some land up there that has private fishing and got asked to come up and help the new uh, leasey start things up there. So, um, What part of Alaska was this in? It's Ketchikan, Southeast Alaska. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and funny enough, it's called the White River. So, you oh, know, right. <laughs> just like the White River in Arkansas, I think there's one in each state almost, but. Yeah. How far are you from the White River in Arkansas? I'm probably a good six to eight hours. Oh, yeah. A decent drive. Yeah. 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 We had a recent episode. We talked uh, with uh, uh, Chad Johnson about streamer fishing the Arkansas or the White River, which was an interesting one. Do you guys do any um, streamers? Is that an uh, option on your stream there on the, um, the what you're fishing in Oklahoma? Yeah. It's really selective, though. You know, there's a couple big holes that, that we do the real heavy streamer fishing in it's produced some really nice fish you know over the years so um a lot of big brain bows and stuff will hold up in those holes okay and i want to get back to some of the fishing but i'm i want to touch base on you're going to the texas uh, we mentioned earlier the uh, bow has this this great event he's got two of them the texas fly fishing and brew festival how far is that from are you going to be driving down because that's in late february are you going to drive down from oklahoma or do you how do you get how far is it yeah i'll be driving down so basically where i'm at is a three to three and a half hour drive from the dallas area and that show is held in mesquite which is just right on the edge of dallas fort worth so it's right in the dallas fort worth okay yeah so yeah so you'll cruise down there and uh February. So you've been to that show before, um, the Texas? Yeah, this will be my third year. How would you describe that Texas show? What's that like? It's great. I mean, there's a lot of good vendors there. There's a lot of great information, a lot of clinics that are, you know, put on in classes that you can learn just a ton of information. Bo does a really good job with putting that on. Yeah, he's, he's definitely, he's got the passion for sure. It seems like he's one of those guys that, uh, he doesn't rest much. It seems like he's going all the time. So that's good. And you don't know, I think you don't quite know what, what you're going to be doing there, but it'll be probably something around the women's um, kind of uh, activities. Is that kind of what it's been in the past? Right. Yeah. Bo puts on a thing. It's a two-day event for the women. And so I'll be overseeing that and probably, um, you know, of course, teaching some type of class during that time. Last year, it was on Euro Nymphing, the beginning of the Euro. I also did some stuff on, you know, interaction with wildlife and stuff like that. So it just kind of starts from the basic and basically there to answer questions. Most of the ladies that do attend that are brand new to the fly fishing. So it's a great way for them to feel comfortable and get a start and be able to ask questions kind of in a, I don't know, a safe space in, you know, that nobody's going to judge them for what they're questions are so yeah definitely no i think that's awesome i think that's so cool there you're doing that and then also virginia right will you be also doing some similar things up there this year yeah maybe helping ashley wilmot who is also on the team she is going to be basically doing the same thing there that i may do in texas by kind of overseeing and then i'll be there support and i'll also be teaching like a beginner's class Mm -hmm. and that one you're going to be flying up to yes Correct. Yeah. I'm not going to drive that one. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, and what is the Euro? So, you know, Team USA, you 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 guys won the bronze this year. Was it, it seems like in, you know, with the men, there's a heavy Euro nymphing, right? A lot of that. And, but there also is some dry, some other stuff. Do you find that it is a heavy Euro nymphing as well uh, this year? Well, I guess you had more lakes, but in your experience? 
So there is a lot of Euro nymphing, but at, in the same aspect, I think it's almost 50-50. There's Euro, and then there is your dry dropper. Both of those methods are used. You know, I think there's kind of a misconception about it only, you know, competitive fishing being centered around Euro nymphing. But if you really think about it, most of, you know, the time your fish are going to eat nymphs, you know, I mean, just hands down, they're always in the water. So, so it is going to be a more productive way of catching fish, but we do use a variety of methods. Um, and then with your lake fishing, it can also be the same. You're going to be stripping bugs, but then you could be using more dries if you've got some fish rising in certain areas. And we do bank sessions, and then we do it out of boats, too. So so there's definitely a variety of different ways that we compete. Right. Okay. And some of that, and are you bringing that to, like you're saying, the mountain fork? Are you doing some of those Euro-nymphing? It sounds like you're doing dry dropper, but would somebody go there if they wanted to learn Euro-nymphing? Could they do it on, on the mountain fork? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think it's a great place to Euro-nymph. And I do some classes. We've done a couple classes on the river. And then also, you know, I'll do one-on-one. And that's that's something with Euro because I try and take people from the beginning. A lot of people get confused, you know, with the leader system and being able to have a cider on there that's not a strike indicator being, you know, a thingamob or something like that. So there's a little bit of difference there. Okay. And so, and what would be the best time? So if somebody was going to be thinking about fishing that is it just pretty much any time during the year you could hit it or what would you recommend oh no it's year round when it comes to your nymph fishing i mean hands down because there's always bugs in the water always yeah i gotcha so it really doesn't matter so it'd probably be good i mean when is the when is the really um the scorching hot is there like what was were you there this summer or or when is that time so if i was to tell people the best times to come and fish the lower mountain fork I would tell them to skip March because it's spring break. It's super busy. Oh, right. (laughs) And then I would also detour them from coming in from July 15th to like the end of August. That is the hottest part. And I do do tours during that time, but it's from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then we're off the river. So that is kind of the way that I work that. I think it's tough on the fish. So I try and keep that in mind. So keep it in mind. Okay. And what is the, uh, are you guiding on your own now? Or are you working with another outfit down there? How, how does that look? You know, I own and operate on the rivers fly fishing company. Yeah. On the rivers. And what was the, you mentioned when you first came there, were you working with another outfit? I was, and they've, they've since moved on. So, um, once that happened, that's when I started and formed my own company. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. And are there others around there uh, doing, uh, are there other fly guide shop? Like, you know, what would be the, are there any fly shops nearby? There is. There's one that's located inside the park, Beaver's Bend Fly Shop and Professional Guide Service. Great bunch of people. There you go. So they're right in the, and this is the, uh, the state park, right? Correct. Yep. Yep. They're a vendor within the state park. Gotcha. Okay. So good. So there's there's a, definitely some resources there. What else should we know about that area if somebody was going to be coming through there or, or want, you know, swinging by? I guess it looks like it's from where it's at. I mean, people could be even driving through, right? If they're on like a, a trip, you know, around the country from yeah. Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a scenic byway. I mean, you know, during the fall, we get a lot of people coming through and, and looking at the leaves and the the different thing there, you know, you're catching the tip of, or the end of the mountains there, what they consider mountains for this area. And uh, so there's that, and there's so many activities. I mean, if there's something that you want to try or do, you can go for a helicopter ride, you can go miniature golfing. There's a golf course there also that sits on the lake. I mean, there's just a variety of activities. There's something for everyone. That's awesome. And what do you, what's your, what's your activity? What do you, other than fly fishing, what are you doing in the, your off time? That's what I do is I, I fish and I tie flies. That's my activities. There you go. So, you know, that is your, (laughs) a full thing. Nice. Good. So I, yeah, I just wanted to kind of paint that picture of what it's like, you know, if somebody's in the area and like I said, we haven't talked Oklahoma. I mean, we've, or if, even if you go up north, I know things change, but you got, you're in that line of, we've talked about this before, the Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska. It's those places that aren't known as the meccas for fly fishing, right? It seems like it's right in. 
And on the other side, like, you know, you got all the Western and then, then you got Arkansas. What's going on in Oklahoma that makes it different than, say, you know, Arkansas? Is it just not as many mountains, a little more arid? Or, or is it, more, it, I guess it sounds like it's more like Texas than it is like Arkansas. Or how does that look? It's hard to describe. So if you're, if you've ever been in Oklahoma or, or like you said, Nebraska, you know, you're kind of looking around, it's kind of flat land and you're striving along and most of the rivers look like, you know, kind of a brackish water or chocolate kind of, you know, you can't see to the bottom. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like you get in Southeast Oklahoma and all of a sudden you're in trees, you're in mountains, it drops about 10 degrees, the water's crystal clear. It's like it, not something that you thought you were going to run into. The unique thing about it is, too, you can be in Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Missouri, and you're within, you know, anywhere from a two to a six-hour drive from there. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. we see people from all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, you're right there. Yeah, you're literally within, like you said, minutes of Arkansas. I mean, Texas, Louisiana is right there, and then everything else. Then you can go up north. And really, you probably aren't even that far from going into the Great Lakes, right? You could probably even get there. It wouldn't be, I mean, a decent drive, but you could still get to, right, even Wisconsin if you wanted to. Yeah. I've done the drive from there to Montana. You're literally about 22 hours from Montana. And you're about 10 hours from Denver. So kind of just to give you approximate of what it's like. That is kind of cool about the the you know geography again because it is kind of mid really it's the mid of middle of the country so you do have access to a lot of those western and like New Mexico right and all that plus you got the east stuff you could hit so really if you're thinking about doing road tripping you're probably in one of the best places right as opposed to somebody who's on the west coast or east coast right yeah and we do see that you know we get your select you know trout bumps is what I call them they come through yep. and. And they, you know, are coming through on their way, going up to Wyoming or going to Colorado or somewhere. And that, that is one of the destinations that they stop and camp and fish. So, yeah. Okay. So cool. Well, let's, um, you know, let's just go back to, um, you know, the river fishing and just talk about anything else we want to describe here about the fishing. It sounds like it's fairly straightforward hatches. I mean, are you getting, it sounds like maybe the hatches are irregular. Are you getting hatches of mayflies and all these other species you hear about in the West? Um, no. Well, I mean, we do. There's different, you know, you got your PMDs and then you've got your, you know, bigger selection of mayflies. I mean, there's so many different species. Um, so there is that. And then, you know, we have a huge black caddis fly hatch that happens. We have the October. We even have a few stone flies. So there is, there is a variety of bugs that come off that river. You know, that water temperature stays pretty decent. Usually, you know, it's always below 70 degrees during the, the summer, except for some of the bigger stiller pools that are on the river. But by all means, it stays cool. I see. Okay. And then how do you fish, like if it was a caddis hatch, whether it's October or something else, what's your technique on fishing the caddis? So I, I do the dry dropper. It's most effective. And then we do have grasshopper hatch too. So, you know, we're always throwing a chubby out there too. So you never, you know, all those different bugs are always on the water. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, this sounds great. I mean, I think where you're shedding some light and part of, like we said, this is where you're tucked in, you're near the forest, right? You're not really out in the middle of like what you might think of Kansas or Oklahoma, right? You're closer to some mountains and that's what you're getting there. That's the influence. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's all, you know, pine trees and, and, uh, oaks and cypress and there's, you're surrounded by trees. Okay. And from that, um, I'm just going back to the the, uh, the competition on the rivers where you were at in, uh, in Canada. Do you take something back from that to Oklahoma? Is a lot of the stuff you do up there or did up there for Canada work down in the waters there? Oh, absolutely. Some of those bugs cross over. Some of the techniques that, you know, you learn through competing and watching other competitors from different countries. Um, there's all, there's a lot of it that I've, you know, put into practice on the river and i feel that now my clients even catch more fish so um you're always learning that's something about this sport and i you know that's what's kept me in it for 25 plus years now is you're always learning i learned from clients i learned from other fishers that i've fished with 
it's just a learning process. If you quit learning, it's, you know, you're done. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, who puts together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that bucket list trip of a lifetime. And these aren't your typical lodge style trips or DIY in it. This is basically floating down the river in remote Alaska with the rainbows, the bears, and all the critters out there, but getting the luxurious uh, comforts of camping with tents and cots and good food and all that stuff. We've had Adam on in a number of episodes here and uh, and actually just give away a big trip uh, this year up to Alaska. So he's been doing some good stuff. Adam and the crew have done a great job. We were on a trip with them down on this uh, this remote section. We had the Northern Lights uh, one night. We had um, beautiful floating down the river. We had white water, uh, good food, big campfires, uh, you name it. Got some nice big rainbows, got some coho. It was just an epic all-around trip, and it definitely was a trip of a lifetime. You can head over right now if you want to check this out, wetflyswing.com slash fishhound, and check in with Adam and pick his brain to see what kind of trips they have on the list. I know they're filling up quick, so if you want to get in there for this next year, uh, check out Fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-T, to connect with Adam and the crew over the Fishhound, and you support this podcast by clicking through that link and, uh, and checking in with the crew. Okay, back to the show. What has that been like for you being in it so long now, looking back at, you know, do you remember when it became a career and you're like, okay, this is, this is it. Do you remember that moment? Oh, absolutely. Where was that when that happened, when you knew like this, this is it? It was in Alaska. You know, it was just the excitement of watching other people catch fish and sometimes their first time and helping them accomplish goals that they wanted to do or dreams that they had, you know just come to Alaska and be able to fish. I mean, we were getting dropped off on waters that might see a couple people a year. I mean, I had 274 permits to different waters throughout Southeast Alaska. Wow. So, so it was, it was exciting and got to see a lot of things, you know, and, and I contribute that to my clients wanting to go to different places. So it was just a lot of fun and excitement. And it's still that way for me. I get a lot of first timers that want to just learn to fish. And that's the unique thing about being on the lower mountain fork is it enables you to teach a couple methods and be able to do it quickly and efficiently that the people are able to catch fish. And so um, that helps and they come back and they want to learn more. So you're always teaching different methods. And is it similar to... The Alaska up there, the the clients and the experience of guiding compared to where you are now, but lots of, or is that, is it a lot different? It's different. I mean, of course, each waterway you go to or state, it's going to be different. I mean, most, you know, people that go to Alaska have saved up all their life or it's a one-time experience where the lower mountain fork in the Oklahoma area and even Montana, those are people that can return and come each year or you build that clientele over time. Yeah. And did you say you were in uh, Ketchikan in Alaska? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So Ketchikan. And for those that don't know, Ketchikan is uh, pretty far. I mean, it's southeast, right? You're, you're way down south in Alaska. Right. So it's the weather and the climate there is more like the Seattle area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's. I haven't been to Ketchikan, but I've been to like Prince Rupert, which is not too far as the crow flies. Right. Uh, down. Right. Yeah, down there. Nice. So, in, in this Ketchikan, is that the place that you you went to many years, and then is that where you were at this last year? Yeah. Yep. I spent about I don't know four weeks up there this last year, and then this year I'll be going up there for about two and a half months. Oh, two and a half. And what are the species that are really? Uh, what is Ketchikan known for? So you have a variety again, of course, there's the salmon run. That's a huge one for people that are wanting to go out fly fishing. Like the Chinook? Um, there are some Chinook, but that's, so you're not allowed to fish in Southeast Alaska in freshwater for kings. So um, we take in and fish definitely for the pinks, the coho, chum. Then you have your variety of trout. You have your... Pacific native cutthroat, and then we have Dolly Barton, 
you have your rainbows. So those are the main species of trout that are in those waterways. And that's, and I'm talking stuff that you can drive to within yeah. the Ketchikan area. Cause there's only 36 miles of road on that Island. But if you put a road all the way around, it would be 1200 miles long. Oh yeah. Yeah. The whole, cause Ketchikan is a, a an Island or isn't it an Island? Yep. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big a giant. It's got, it's amazing. I mean, that's the thing about Alaska is so cool is that you're, as you zoom out, you're in this tiny little famous, I mean, Ketchikan is a well-known but it's just this tiny little speck as you look over, you know, the right. does it feel like that when you're there in Ketchikan? Does it, I mean, you've got a little town there or big town or whatever it is, but does it just, what do you love about Ketchikan going up there? So Ketchikan is, well, it's the fourth largest city in Alaska, you know, mm. and, and it has approximately 12,000 people during the summer. During the winter, it's probably more around 10, somewhere in that neighborhood. The community is just unbelievable. I mean, truly, everybody cares about everybody. Um, so you still have that small town feeling, you know, that you, maybe you get in a town of three or 400. So there's that. And then you're in Alaska. I mean, every day you wake up, the whales are in the ocean, the float planes are buzzing around. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. You know, and, and there you don't get the heavy winters and things like that it doesn't go completely dark it doesn't go completely light so it's a little bit different than what you see up on the mainland you know in southeast alaska you're you know a five-hour plane ride to anchorage but you're an hour and a half to seattle so that's that's the difference oh that is amazing yeah you're that's the thing you're down there you're close yeah relatively yeah. to seattle yeah okay and then so people coming up there. And what was the name of the lodge that you're working with up there? So there I'm I'm working with Family Air, great company. They do flyouts. They also have permitting to the local rivers and they have a lease for the White River. So And is the White River that's one of the big rivers there? Yeah. So there's only there's only two streams that you can access on land, you know, by driving to. And the White River's one of them, and then Ward Creek is the other one. Ford Creek. Okay. And those, so you're, if people are coming up there, are you doing a lot of the fishing around town? Or are you also flying out to other destinations? So currently I'm, I'm mainly doing just the in-town stuff. But it has, like you said, it has everything, pretty much everything is there in town, including, I mean, what is the one when people are coming there? Um, I guess that's, I didn't realize it was quite the hub. I didn't realize it was the fourth biggest city behind, I guess, Anchorage, Fairbanks. And what's, what would be the third? What's the other big city? I can't remember. Oh, Juno. Oh, Juno. Yeah. Juno. Yeah. You got you to gotta throw the capital in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, Juno. Yeah. Yeah. Forget about that. But Ketchikan, I mean, it's because it's such a hub, right? Ketchikan is a, um, a huge. Why is it? Because I never realized it was the fourth biggest. Is it because it's just the hub for all the fishing the industry? So, no, there's a couple of things that have, through time that have gone on. You know, they have an international airport. Um, you do have to go on a 10 minute ferry ride from that island to Ketchikan's, which is Revilla Gagato Island. That's where Ketchikan sits on. So there is there is that little bit of commute between those two. And then, you know, at one time it was a huge logging industry and it's a huge fishery for, it's kind of a place for the, the crab and the salmon fishery and shrimp, but logging and they had a pulp mill at one time. So there's there's oh, been wow. a variety of things that have happened now. It's kind of gone from the logging has really dwindled down. The pulp mill's been closed for years. Oh, right. And is that just because logging, I mean, there's just no more logs left or it's just the industry is not as big? No, the, a lot of it's just, I mean, this is personal opinion. I'm pretty sure it has to do with, with uh, permitting. Changes in regulations and stuff. Right. And that's one unique thing about, you know, Alaska that a lot of people don't know, you know, when they log. Here, they have to replan everything they log. There, they don't. It just automatically grows back. Oh, in Ketchikan, they don't have to replan it. No, it just automatically grows back. And it's it's unreal to see that. You can tell where areas have been clear-cutted, but, I mean, it's all growing back. So, so it's, it is a resource that, you know, replenishes itself. 
Interesting. God, this is so cool. So, and you know, to that area, what would you recommend for that if somebody wanted to come up there and hit? I mean, you've got all these species. Is there, I mean, you're there, what, between June and like uh, September or, or what's your time there? Yeah. So I'll, I'll be there mid-June to the first part of October, maybe end of September. A lot of my stuff depends on what I'm doing with the USA women's team. So we'll be in Czech Republic, you know, in May. So once I finish that up, then then I'll take and head up to Alaska for a while. And then nationals will probably be held sometime in that fall. So so a lot of it will be contingent on that. This is cool. Do you love all the, the travel? It seems like you're all over the place, Alaska, Oklahoma, and then traveled around the world. for. Is, do you ever get tired of that? Is that something you just really love? I love it. But I'm not going to say it's kind of nice to be home for a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Living out of a suitcase, kind of. Right. Because what is it now? It's um, it's uh, almost December, right? So we're kind of coming into de- December. And then it's going to be New Year pretty soon. So this is a time of year when you're you're kicking back, Roy, and you're, you don't have to do a lot of travel this time of year. Right. Until, until when? When do you start traveling? So basically it'll kick off um, with the shows with Bo. I'm going to Virginia. Um, unless a mini comp comes up, then, you know, there's potential that I would fly somewhere and try and do a comp. You're always wanting to get in as many comps as you can and, and participate because it makes you a better angler and you can learn from the anglers there. The mini comp, describe the process. So the mini comps are these kind of preliminary things to get people up or describe what that is, how that fits in. You become a member of the U.S. fly fishing team. By registering there, and then that what that does is that allows you to participate in mini comps. Oh, and are there are there different levels? Are there like the men's has the three, has youth, has the middle, and then has the masters? Does, do women's have all three or just one? No, we do not have all three. So just to back up a little bit, so the men's team is actually the adult team because women have participated in that and they still do. So there is an adult team. It is leaned more towards the men's, you know, there hasn't been that many women on it, but, but it is, you know, has been called the adult. And then the youth team now this year, they have the second girl, I think ever that's on the national team. Oh, okay. So it's mixed. Yes, it's mixed. And then with the women's team, that is, that just formed two years ago. And then the master's team has always been men, but who knows if that will change in the future. So the women's is is the age is similar as the adults. I mean, so that you could either be on the women's team or be on the men's team. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. And then who are you playing when you're out there competing um, some of these other countries? Are these all countries that have had women's teams for a long time or a lot of them newer as well? Yeah, so you do see that. There is some, some newer ones that have formed a team. Well, I guess a world's team. Um, they've always competed in their own international things. I mean, I'm not that familiar with it, but some of these women's teams have fished together 10, 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So they're tight knit family at this point, probably. So that must be, that's amazing. You guys, I mean, in a few years, you've been able to uh, medal. Like, what is the, are you surprised at that? Or is that just a tribute to um, how have you been able to do that? Well, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it's not just, you know, going to these events and competing. We do a lot of prep work, tying flies, being able to um, spend time with different people. Like, for instance, Canada, we spent time with um, Sean Cochran, who is on the men's team. And he had been to Canada eight times and had meddled several times there. So you're you're getting information from others that have spent time, you know, at these events in the past. And that's a huge resource starting a new team and coming into it. I see. Yeah. You need tons of resources. Okay. Yeah. Tell me a little about what's going on with the women's, how people can support uh, what you all have going. So we're part of U.S. Angling, which is a confederation that allows us to be able to participate in um, world events. On that website, there's a section for the women. And we can take donations there and sponsorships. Right now, we're self-funded, and we have been, at the, you know, since the beginning of this. So it, it does make it difficult to 
he participate, you know, like going to Norway was about 10 grand per participant. Canada was a little bit better because you could, you know, drive there. <laughs> so, but we're looking at going Czech Republic this yeah. year. And that's probably somewhere right there in the, the realm of, of what it costs to go to Norway. Um, we do have some, you know, sponsorships through some of the companies in the industry, but it's more for equipment than it is monetary. Yeah, paying for it. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay. So if people wanted to support what you have going, they could go out to um, to uh, usangling.org and just go to, it looks like there's a become a member. Yep. Yeah. And the biggest thing about that is down there on the bottom of that is clicking, you know, US women's fly fishing team because oh, I see it. you have to sponsor each one individually that's on that list. Oh. So, so if that doesn't get put there, they don't know where the money goes. <laughs> Yeah, so make sure you make note that it's U.S. women's fly fishing. Yeah, and Bo will be, you know, he'll be doing some fundraising at these shows and stuff. I think he's got some raffles that he's thinking about doing, so that'll be helpful. We've kind of partnered with him, and that's why you'll see um, a lot of us, you know, U.S. women at these events oh, yeah. trying to participate and help out. Foling Mill is a is a big help, too, with all of our fly tying and hooks and everything, too, so... They've been real supportive. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to get some people out that way. And yeah, I think that this sounds like totally reasonable that uh, you guys should be supported. You know, I mean, it is Team USA, right? This is something where, you know, you're representing the country and women. So it's pretty important. So this is, this is good. And that's something that we are doing too with the women. We're putting on clinics and trying to get other ladies involved. So definitely contact one of us if it's through my business website, or you can go on the Facebook page for the USA Women's Team and just contact us and we'll let you know when we're holding these different events or come and do a mini comp and let let us know you're a first time and we're going to help you out. I mean, that's nice. We would like to have more participating going into the 2024 nationals and have more women there. Right on. Yeah. And I think uh, there are some other groups out there, right? Like uh, the one that comes to my mind is the United Women on the Fly, uh-huh. which I think, are, I'm not sure if they're around kind of the Oklahoma area, but, you know, it seems like that might be a good opportunity to connect. I don't know. Have you connected with them? Or are you involved in that group at all? Yeah, I think we've connected, you know, with a lot of the different women groups, you know, doing events. We went to Utah and there was the lady fly fishers there that had oh, right. a, a dinner for us and we sat around and visited with them and stuff so you know a lot of us do trout unlimited talks um we're just trying to get it out there a lot of people don't realize that there is a u.s women's fly fishing team so right um, a lot of it's just getting it out there we just held a clinic about three weeks ago in colorado and had eight women show up um out of those there was four brand new ones from all over the place um oregon montana um so just trying to move forward and get more and more women involved. Perfect. No, this is great. We will definitely put some links in the show notes to all this uh, usangling.org and get the word out. This is awesome. Perfect. Well, let's, um, like I said, let's take it out of here pretty quick. Well, of course, this is, uh, we talked about before, Bo, but we've got a couple of festivals. We're going to give a shout out our, our fishing festivals. The, we got two. So Virginia is uh, is right around the corner uh, when this goes out, the Virginia uh, Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. So you're going to be there. And then also the uh, Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival is going to be in uh, Texas later February. I think it's the 24th, 25th. So quick shout out. That's our shout out to, and this is presented by Drifthook. And I want to start this off because drifthook.com, they sell flies. They're uh, one of our partners. And then I was looking, they have a, a blog post. I know Matt's been doing some stuff writing blog posts and stuff and and he's got this one on oklahoma 16 places to fish in oklahoma and he's got some of the flies that you need to use so i'm curious we're gonna we're, we're gonna fact check him here a little bit so do you know it sounds like you haven't been all around oklahoma but some of these names he's got here edwards park glover river uh, lake carl etling lake pahuska um, lower illinois river do are those names familiar to you are those are those spread around oklahoma no, those are familiar. And the lower uh, Illinois, that's the other one that holds trout year round. So yeah, the Glover, I mean, no, he's he's spot on on all those different waterways. Some of the 
the lakes that he mentioned, I'm not that familiar with, but I don't do a lot of warm water species. So, okay, cool. Yeah. And he, he goes in a little more deep, but we'll put a link to the show notes to this blog post. It's awesome. I'll, I'll check in with Matt, but it talks about the Barren Fork Creek part of the Illinois, and then he's got some fly recommendations. Uh, so he's got a bunch here, uh, including the uh, double bunny, all of, but what are your, let's just start with that. What, give me a couple of flies. If you're, if we were flying in there, driving in there to stop and fish with you on your home water, what would be two patterns that you definitely would recommend having on there? I would definitely have an RS2 and I would probably have a Prince nymph. Yeah, and Prince. Yeah, and tiny. We're talking 22s. Oh, wow. So tiny yeah. stuff up there. So is that just because it's specific to that area or the small flies are always better throughout the year over there? Um, smaller flies are always better and it's a tailwater. Tailwater is small flies. So um, just kind of a rule of thumb. Okay. And is a zebra midge uh, any any good ever used out there? Yep. Zebra midge. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Crystal midge. I mean, I can go on and on on yeah, different. Yeah, tons you know. of stuff. Yeah. Good. Well, well, I'll let Matt know. He'll be happy that he put together a, a solid blog post in, uh, in, in here. But um, So let's do a couple other um, rapid fires as we get down here. So what is the rod you recommend uh, coming up there fishing that? What's your typical weight length? Nine foot five weight if you're just going to have a general rod. And then, uh, you know, ten and a half foot three weight if you're going to Euro. Okay. And is that, that's your Euro game. So you like the, the ten and a half foot, not the... Not the, um, I don't know. I mean, what is the longer? Do they have some Euro rod or people using 11 footers now or anything like that? Yeah. Some people use an 11 footer, but that river's not, I don't think it's big enough that you really need 11 foot, but I guess, you know, it's up to you. Okay. And what's your go-to? Do you have a rod brand, uh, that you use a lot of out there? I use a variety. TFO is the one that I use, you know, mainly for nine foot five weights. And then, um, I recommend for starting out and stuff, there's a Cortland nymph rod that I would recommend. And, you know, I use Hardy. I use, there's several different ones. Sure. Hardy. And what's your, what's your line? Do you have a specific line type or a brand? I use a lot of SA scientific angler. Yeah. SA. Yeah. It seems like um, definitely there's, it seems like there's a few line brands, you know, all the big ones are just kind of doing knocking it out of the park with what they're you know on it seems like they've all got this dialed in now do you do you find that's uh the gear is not the um the big issue these days it seems like what is the biggest challenge to catching fish on your home water if somebody's coming there let's just say they're on their own what is their biggest challenge what would be your biggest tip for them today i would tell them you know a lot of people overlook some of that water and you really need to fish it all those fish will hide in places that you don't just don't think that there'll be flat skinny runs um your faster water i watch people all the time walk through areas that i know are holding fish so i would just say really you know look at your water take five ten minutes and really look around your surrounding before you just jump in yep figure out what's going on and maybe maybe check in with the fly shop or maybe even call you if they had some questions about you know what's going on that time of year Oh, absolutely. Roberta at the fly shop. She's excellent. I'll answer any questions that you have or, you know, if you're wanting to know what's what's working that week because it's always changing. Okay. And, and what's your, uh, remind us again that your website is, uh, what's the, the domain URL? It's www.ontherivers.com. Yeah, ontherivers.com. Perfect. And um, and before we get out of here, uh, I always love to ask the music or podcast question. Do you listen to more music or more podcasts out there or both? I'm going to say it's 50-50. Oh, good. All right. So this is awesome. So what's on a podcast? Um, what would be, you know, kind of in your top or in your feed or what do you listen to now? You know, do you listen to a lot of like uh, outdoor or do you listen to a mix of things? No, I listen to mainly outdoor. I'm, you know, somebody's always sending me a podcast or something that's going on. So I would say that that's probably the number one thing. Okay. And then what about, what about music? If you're on a road trip, what would be something you'd be putting in, uh, you know, it's always country. Is it? Yep. I always listen to country, the highway. Okay. All right. Just some general, is this country like uh, old country, new country, a mix of both? Makes, makes of both. It always has, but probably the newer stuff. Yeah. The newer stuff. Okay. 
Well, um, I think, uh, Julie, we'll leave it there. I will, like we said, we'll send everybody out to uh, ontherivers.com. And also, like we said, the uh, you're going to be in uh, Virginia early in January and then Texas. So we'll hopefully get some people heading out there to take a, you know, meet up with you there. And if they do, we'll have uh, them let you know, uh, let you know they heard of you on the podcast. So I appreciate all your time today, Julie, and uh, we'll be in touch with you. All right. Thank you. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.